You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. All right. Oh, man. Thinking about just life circumstances and and trials and all that kind of stuff this week. And isn't it amazing how circumstances in our life have a tendency to make us feel disoriented? Has ever happened to you? It's like you know what's true and yet it, it doesn't compute in those moments. Maybe tend to lose a sense of direction or a little bit confused and unable to think clearly. Um, I, this, this week, for, for probably about a month, there's been an ever-growing conversation with a couple aunts of Blaze, our, our four-year-old, that we took from birth from the hospital six weeks old after coming off drugs and it became very apparent in the last little while that there there are a couple ants that would really like to have him and and take him and so this weekend uh, friday sherry and i dropped him off at a hotel for for two nights to be with an ant and that was one of the hardest things i've done in my life uh four years with this little boy and we've fostered for many years and we've given many back but that one hurt like none have hurt and that evening going up to my bedroom and there's his room is just down the hall and there's always a very loud sound machine in his room and if it's not a loud sound machine it's a loud boy um, but that room was silent, and as I laid on my bed, I was so uh, discombobulated, disoriented, and had conversations with God and tried to reconcile in my mind God in his sovereignty Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. A.W. Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, he says this, the exercise, this is, he defines God's sovereignty as the exercise of his supremacy, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most High Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. He goes on to say divine sovereignty means God is God in fact as well as in name. 
that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his will. He's unrivaled in majesty. He's unlimited in power. He's unaffected by anything outside of him. I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of his sovereignty. And I can't help but think, as there was in the first gathering this morning, that there are some here this morning that are wrestling and are a bit disoriented and confused. Maybe have lost a sense of direction and are trying to figure out what way is up and down. And does God really care in spite of the present circumstance? Paul is, sorry, Peter is writing this letter to those who are probably feeling a little disoriented. They're being persecuted. They're suffering. They need to be encouraged. They need to be reminded about a few things. I think we need to be reminded about a few things this morning as well. The first thing that Peter wants to remind these exiles is that they are beloved. That's the first word in our text this morning, beloved. Your translation translation might say dear friends, which many commentaries would say seems to be too weak. Beloved is a better translation because the churches that Peter is writing to, they're more than dear friends. They are brothers and sisters in God's family. They are dearly loved. They are objects of God's immeasurable love. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are an object of God's immeasurable love. Last week, we've seen that we are people of his own, for his own possession in verses 9 and 10. We're, we're God's possession. Think of the things that you possess and how much joy you find in those things. We are God's own possession. That we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we read these words, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now you have received mercy. This is so foundational to whatever you're going through or going to go through, we have to be rooted in this reality that we are his beloved. John Owen, a 1600s English Puritan, said this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not believe that he loves you. I, I think we often... We often um, see our circumstances in life and we say, because this circumstance is in my life right now, God can't love me. 
First John, 1 John 3, 1 to 3, we read this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then this is beautiful word again, beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. They need to be reminded right at the outset. Before we start talking about some things that you need to do, you need to be reminded that you're, you're his beloved. And they need to be right, reminded that they were sojourners and exiles. You see, dearly loved children have a different postal code. This sojourners and exiles speaks of one who lives in a place that's not their true home. You're a temporary resident. I think all too often we are way too comfortable and we're absolutely convinced that this is our true home. It's often that when trials or circumstances come that come up and just like grab themselves and smack you in your face like they're this big in your face and that's all you can see, it's often in those times where we, we remember or we're reminded that, that this, isn't, this isn't our home. I love what Psalm 84, I think it's verse 5, that says that the, the pilgrim that's traveling to Jerusalem on his way, passing through the Valley of Baca, it says, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. I love that. <laughs> because there's something about those who Jesus has awakened their hearts. You, you always keep coming back to there's, there's no other road. There's no other way. We need to be reminded of this truth regularly. We need to be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior as Philippians 3.20 says. Midtown, you are here now because God planned it. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Because you are beloved, because you are a sojourner and an exile, you will stand out. The question is, will you stand out in a good way? You see, Jesus stood out in a good way and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus said these words to his disciples, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. One commentary writes about this passage. He says, the knowledge that they do not belong does not lead to withdrawal, but to their, t but to their taking their standards of behavior not from the culture in which they live, but from their home culture of heaven. Listen to this. So that their life always fits the place where they are headed to rather than their temporary lodging in this world. Does your life fit the place where you're headed to rather than the temporary lodging in this world? Again, this sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? 
He says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So knowing we are beloved, knowing that we are sojourners, should not lead us to withdrawal, but lead us to living in a way where our life fits the place we're headed to. And so Peter wants to remind them of this, this reality, this truth. And so he begins by saying, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. And then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like this is a big text this morning and a lot we were gonna be flying over at 30,000 feet. But, but this reminder, abstain from the passions of the flesh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter is writing to encourage them, but also to strengthen them that, they, that they, they need to be different. They need to stand out. In the midst of persecution and suffering for our faith, I think there can be a tendency often to compromise the witness of our lives in order to avoid offense. Have you ever been there? The, the call sometimes is, is bigger than, than our capacity to fill it and fulfill it. And I would say that should be, that should be every day. Every day there should be a sense that, that what God has called us to is bigger than my ability to fulfill it. And, and, and the beautiful thing about it is that's God's purpose. That's why his spirit indwells us. So the emphasis of verse 11 and 12 is this. Christians living in a broken world, we need to abstain from sinful desires that are contrary to God's will, and we need to live a life that demonstrates our inner transformation in a way that unbelievers will be saved and God glorified. So something has happened on the inside, and because something has happened on the inside, because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we are able to wage war against those, those things that, that are always actively at work in our hearts. We're able to wage war and we're able to, uh, by the Spirit of God, we're able to change from the inside out. And so the unbeliever sees something different about us. We stick out, we stand out in a different way. The question would be this morning is, do you, in your place of work or in school or wherever you are, do you stand out in a way that where it says that they, they will glorify God on the day of visitation? That, that is a, a, a speaking of unbelievers being saved by watching outwardly the inner transformation of God in your life. So we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable we're also to submit to every human institution, verses 13 to 17. Be subject or submit. There's a command. For the Lord's sake, there's the motive. Submit, for the Lord's sake, our motive, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor's as supreme, the governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the extent of our call to submit. There's a command, there's a motive. This is the extent. When, when Peter writes this first epistle to the elect exiles, 
Nero had burned Rome, including all its cultural and religious artifacts, and blamed the Christians. These Christians were already facing persecution, but now it was about to intensify. According to one Roman historian, Nero rolled Christians in pitch and then set them on fire while they were still alive and used them as living torches to light his garden parties. This was the emperor Peter was referring to when he wrote the following. We, we just don't like a lot of things getting too close or upsetting our nice, happy lives, do we? We know nothing of this. We, don't, we can't, even, can't even comprehend what's going on here. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. And by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's the reason. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Living as servants of God. This is our attitude. Our attitude is, is that we are a servant of God, and therefore, and therefore, we are in full submission to him who is sovereign over all. If, if you think you're free because you have freedom to do things in your life, listen, you are never truly free until you are a servant of God. You're never free until you are a servant of God. Jesus' own words, lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. And then he tells us to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. These are not in priority, but what I like about this, what I love about this is that we are told to honor everyone as image bearers, and yet there is the same word, honor the emperor. So there wasn't like emperors up here, everyone else, no. In the sight of God, whether it was the emperor or it was a servant, we honor Everyone, we honor image bearers, we love the brotherhood, and we fear God. Now, we live in a culture that hates authority. And it's safe to say that, that we have all been affected by this. I, I, I think we're undergoing a crisis of authority and I think it's been going on for decades. Um, sometimes this blows me away to hear children speak to their parents like they speak to their parents. It blows me away sometimes to hear parents, people with no respect for those in positions of authority over them, in the workplace, in the government. Man, we've had every reason under the sun to trash our government in the last couple of years, haven't we? Or have we?
Christians, we find ourselves, I think, getting all caught up with the spirit of this age, the spirit of rebellion that exists against authority. And yet the scriptures have much to say about our need to submit, be mindful of human authorities, listen, that God has put in place. Peter's given this call to God's people who are in the middle of experience a great deal of suffering at the hands of the authorities and others in the culture. It appears that there's much injustice to endure, and, and yet Peter calls them to obey even while they're being treated unjustly. And we're reminded in verse 13, 14, that they were to submit for the Lord's sake. See, God placed those authorities over them and obeying them is part of what it meant to obey the Lord. And I think this same command applies to us today. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's why sometimes when we are disoriented by things that we feel is unjust, we need to remember this truth. Unfair treatment does not necessarily mean that we can disobey the authorities that God has placed over us. We as Christians are often influenced by our surroundings. It's, it, it's all about my rights, isn't it? Isn't it? Everywhere in our culture, it's all about my rights. It's, it's not at all in our culture about God. It, it, it should be in the church, be all about God, about all about us being his beloved, all about us being sojourners, all about us being called to reflect him in the world. You see, God is more concerned about our hearts than he is our civil rights. We're, we're not merely paying taxes or obeying the speed limit or you name it, throw it in there. We are, these, these are all acts of worship. Mundane stuff. How can it be an act of worship? By recognizing that God has ordained these authorities. We're called to go out of our way to make sure we obey those that God has set over us and we should never be looking for ways to justify unlawful disobedience. I think at this point it would be helpful to mention that no authority can assume the place of God or demand that we, that demand that we break his commands. Listen, when, when we are told to do something that God forbids, we must disobey that authority. And when we're forbidden to do something that God commands, we must disobey that authority. And there are many examples in Scripture, but for the sake of time, we're going to not dive in there. 
So we're to submit to every human institution. We're to submit in the workplace. In verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the just. For this is a gracious thing, listen, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Servants, here is a reference to household servants or household slaves, which made up a large portion of the Roman Empire population in Peter's day. It seems like there is a significant number of them who have encountered Jesus, and therefore Peter is encouraging them. He's encouraging that they're more than just being the property of their masters, that they're God's very own possession. We hear a lot about why do bad things happen to good people. When we understand that we are beloved and that we are sojourners, and that is foundation to, foundational to everything that happens in our lives, then we can interpret those circumstances by saying, God is good and God works all things for my good and ultimately for his glory. See, loyalty to God outranked their loyalty to the master their master. That's what Peter is saying. This wasn't always easy because many of them, as we can see in our text, were mistreated by their master. Two words in verse 19 to describe the effects of working for oppressive masters, sorrows and suffering. I mean, that doesn't sound like a good job. How many are in your job right now and you're experiencing on a daily basis sorrows and suffering? Have you ever experienced mistreatment, though, or suffering in your workplace? Maybe, maybe now, maybe you're stressed and struggle to know what to do. <clears throat> it's interesting that this text, Peter doesn't say escape it. He says just the opposite. He says endure it. Verse 20 seems to indicate that some of them were were beaten by their masters regularly, and yet Peter tells them to submit to them even if they're not good to them or gentle on them. I mean, I, I don't know if it does that to you, but when I read that and when I think about this, like, just like, what does it do to you when you hear that? I was like, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I was having lots of moments as I was uh, thinking about this this week. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of differences between today and our workplace and what's happening in the lives of these servants. We, we can quit and find another job. We can say, take this job and shove it. Did I say that out loud? I ain't working here no more. That's just a good old country song. 
We're not to suffer in silence. We're, we're not just to suck it up and do nothing about our situation, especially if there's harassment or abuse. But maybe for some of us, before we jump ship, we need to ask, what, why does God have me here? I don't know that we ask that enough about a lot of aspects of our life. What is he teaching me? It, let me ask you this question. Is it possible that God cares more about your sanctification than he does your salary? Or your comfort? One commentary says of this text, the Christian slaves here are to carry out their role in such a way that their primary, primary allegiance to God is not compromised. In your workplace, is your witness being done in a way that your primary allegiance to God is not being compromised? He says, for what credit is if, if it, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why is it a gracious thing in the sight of God? Well, verse 21 tells us, for to this you have been called. And we are like at this moment, are you kidding me? To this you have been called, called to suffer? Do you believe that the word call there speaks of vocation? <laughs> it's your vocation to suffer. Suffering by the kind providence of God. Listen, your mistreatment is never random. It's never accidental or haphazard. You've been called to this. There's nothing worse than to suffer any kind of pain without reason. I know so many that are suffering so much pain. And how hard it is often to reconcile but it is not without reason. One man said, we will never find the full freedom promised in the gospel if all we want from Jesus is relief. If you've come to Jesus looking for relief, you will never find it. Oh, there, in, in one sense, there is great relief. But in another sense, there is a call to take up our cross and to follow him. And taking up a cross is painful. We must never view ourselves as victims. Life circumstances are part of God's holy calling for you. So Romans 8 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We're called to suffer, Midtown. Verse 21 tells us, because Christ suffered for you. It, it, it is beyond comprehension that Christ suffered, but it is double beyond comprehension that he suffered for me and for you. He suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. There's a little book published in 1896 written by Charles M. Sheldon called In His Steps. It's one of the best-selling books of all time. The story is about a pastor of a church who challenges his congregation to commit for a whole year to ask this question, what would Jesus do before making any decisions? And I don't know if you're old enough or not, but in 1990 there was a resurgence and um, if you were not wearing a WWJD, then you were not a Christian. Do you remember that? Yeah. Merch, there was a lot of money made on WWJD. What would Jesus do is a great question. But first and foremost, we need to know what he has already done for us. You will not suffer well unless you are rooted in the reality of what he has already done for you. In closing, six minutes, we're going to take a look at what he has done for you. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is quoted from Isaiah 53.9, Jesus, the suffering servant. How could anyone inflict suffering on a perfect man? And yet it pleased the Father to inflict that suffering. Make no mistake, it was the Father that inflicted Jesus' suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. I mean, think about it. When you're reviled, do you not revile in return? It's just like pit bull instinct, isn't it? <laughs> but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. <laughs> he entrusted himself, committed himself to the Father. Oh, oh, that we would be those people. When we don't get it, when we can't understand it, when the pressure's coming, when suffering is coming, when, when we can't, interpret our circumstance and we're disoriented. 
we entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father. In light of this, in light of Jesus being our perfect standard for suffering, how, how could we not do the same? And we read in verse 24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Oh, this is such good news. This is such good news because if he didn't bear my sin in his body on the tree, then my suffering is in vain. But because he did, there's an ache in my heart, the highways to Zion of the day where I will see him face to face and there will be no more pain, no more broken little children that that on any given week, just the amount of ache that happens in their little hearts and the, the crushing weight of sin and wickedness. This is the heart of the gospel. The Father thought of your sin and my sin as belonging to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He poured out his wrath against our sin on Christ. Jesus became our substitute, one who stood in our place that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That happened in an instant when regeneration happened and our hearts were made new by the Spirit. All of a sudden, what, what took place, what transpired is, is a new identity. And because of that new identity, we can die to sin and we can live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. I know lots like to translate this to communicate that all healing, physical healing happens in this life, but it doesn't have anything to do with being cured of physical healing. It has to do with escaping the punishment for our sin. By his stripes, we escape the punishment for our sin. For you were straying like sheep every one of us in this room. Again, Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but now, but now at our conversion in the midst of whatever comes in our life, we know, we know this, that the Lord is the shepherd and the overseer of our soul. Come on. wrestling we can't figure it out we don't know how to reconcile what's happening at this time but we do know this that the lord is my shepherd and i have no lack and sometimes he allows me to go through the valley of the shadow of death but even there i will fear no evil for the lord is with me 
He's the overseer. He's the supervisor. He's the super looker. He's the one who watches over us. His eye is on us because we are his beloved. We are sojourners. We are awaiting the day when we will see him face to face. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Would you make us a people that that keeps our eyes fixed on you? Remind us this morning again and again that we are your beloved. Remind us that this world is not our home, that we got a different postal code. We're just passing through and we await the day when, when all will be made right. But until that day, would you make us ones who see you as the sovereign one seated on your throne and you do always as you please, only as you please. Help us to submit and bow to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.